Hello and welcome to the Amplifier Podcast, the show where the best in business discuss how you can grow your business best. I'm Wyatt McPherson, I produce this show, and on this episode, our host Don Cooper is joined by Todd Snellgrove for his first of three episodes with us to talk about value creation in all aspects of a successful business. Todd is a senior member of Experts in Value, driving value-focused selling and culture language to help businesses create and maintain high value creation for their clients. Todd is also widely accepted as the leading subject matter expert when it comes to value. And if you think I've mentioned value a lot, then you would be correct, but it is an incredibly important aspect to any successful business to set yourself apart and make your clients happy. So this is definitely an episode that you don't want to miss, but don't forget that we did two more episodes with Todd that are out alongside this one, and do make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss any others in the future. But with all of that said, I truly do hope that you enjoy this episode of the Amplifier Podcast. Now please take it away, Don. So welcome to the next episode of the Amplifier Podcast. I'm your host, Don Cooper. Today, I have a special guest for you, Mr. Todd Snellgrove. So welcome to the show, Todd. This is, uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Well, thanks, Todd, for having me and look forward to sharing some uh, experiences and best practices and giving the people some takeaways of how to capture value so that both the buyer and seller can be more profitable. Now, understanding value is an, is a, is a really niche and really important space. So tell me how like your career that got you to here. I'll, I'll try to keep it short, but hopefully there's some key takeaways from it. So uh, Donna, I think, you know, I'm Canadian. So I grew up outside Toronto area and had a chance to go work for a big engineering company called SKF in the mid nineties. Uh, great company group made great products and services, but they were always the price uh, leader, the higher price version in the marketplace. And back in the 90s, the technical sales representatives of SKF would talk to the technical people at the customer, the engineering people, and they would talk technology and terminology, et cetera. And the, and the technical buyer would have all the authority, the power to make the decision. And purchasing was basically told what to do, you know, make it better, make my machines better. That's what mattered. And then we started to see this rise of the economic buyer finance, procurement, the evolution from purchasing to procurement to C-level discussion. And I'm saying, you know, there's three or four or five other competitors that look the same and smell the same. Why am I paying you more? And I started working on how do we communicate our value better? Uh, how do I quantify that in dollars and cents so we can present that to customers? And that started a long journey. I moved to the States, did this for North America, then globally, on the sell side and pricing side and business model side, but also on the buying side, making sure that our company was making the best buying decisions on best value. So what is value? How do you quantify it? How do you uh, articulate it? These types of things, because having great products and services that you can't put a number to uh, leaves the buyer in a situation where they don't have much meat to justify where they're not buying the three bids in the lowest price that meets the minimum requirement. So our CEO Free bids said, and buy is not a good idea? No, not what? a good idea. Not a good idea. And the CEO said, hey, you know, SCAP being a big company, $10 billion, they said, I spend all this time and money investing in training and products development and all this stuff. But if I can't get our customers willing and able to pay for it, it's worthless. I need somebody to pull together all this value stuff. So kind of created my own job and went on a 25-year run dealing with big companies. And now I help companies uh, on the buying side and the selling side uh, implement it. That's awesome. You and I are, I think, similar in age. And, and you know, I started 
you know, on the sales side, being a technical sales guy, I started off as a technician and then got into sales in the early nineties. And, you know, the, you know, the, the two things that you said there about the rise of the economic buying influence, um, so true, you know, and, and so many people in the industrial space, we still levitate towards doing all of this selling and conversations with the technical specification buying influences. And then we kind of get hit in the head by the, by the finance people who didn't understand any of that value conversation, the technical reasons why we're better. And it's like, well, we just need you to be cheaper now. And, you know, I find that, you know, that's so true. The other thing that I think is, is really important and I think is a, a significant change is those same technical, sorry, economic buying influences 25 years ago, they and the engineers that we worked with needed us because we had all the information mm-hmm. today. They don't need us for the information or at least they don't perceive to need us for the information because, you know, Google can tell them 500 ways to buy a valve. Yep. Yep. No, it's, uh, I'm just smiling and laughing here because yes, I mean, uh, we might need to help them sift through the extreme amounts of knowledge and conflicting knowledge. But uh, when, when I started and, you know, not to get too finite in, in terminology or titles, but people were purchasing people. And it's specifically in the industrial space, a lot of the purchasing people were the retired people, people that were getting older on an age, knew the business. But again, it was, I'm not trying to minimize, it was very important, but what am I buying? What's the part number? You know, that one doesn't look like that one type stuff, but it was more of an administrative function. And I don't know the exact numbers with me right now, but in 1999, 1% of Fortune 500 companies had a chief procurement officer. It was Procurement was part of finance and it was a subcomponent right. and it was more really purchasing. So the activity of how do I buy, what form, what are my terms and conditions? Uh, fast forward to today, I think 99% of every fortune, whatever company has a chief procurement officer, whether they report to the CEO or they report to the uh, a president somewhere, they're very high level. Uh, it's become much more strategic because you have to think, if you have three companies, and I'm just going to use an example here that make paper or oil or whatever, drill something, it's their ability to differentiate their offering and pulling that value from their suppliers. So, you know, as I always say to procurement people, my technical people are a limited resource. There's three paper mills they're going to call on. You all make paper. Your cost of buying your raw inputs and energy is probably very similar. It's who can operate their machinery the most efficiently it's probably going to have the biggest impact on their profitability. The best way to do that is to get those salespeople that are smart to want to bring their best ideas first to you. That's the competitive advantage. And they're not going to keep coming there if it's three bids and a buy. They're boss. I mean, you're a boss, Don. Do you want your salespeople spending all their time doing free consulting, bringing all these ideas to companies that don't reward them with the order? Eventually, it's no, go where you're rewarded with some business people. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, in my industrial business, I instruct my entire team that when we get what I call a blind RFQ, I evaluate it first on, is this an existing client or is this a new client? If it's a new client, we have one question. Will your team, and I list the team of stakeholders we want to meet with, Mm -hmm. will they meet with us or not? If they say no, we say no, thank you. 
it's good to hear you have a process. It's good to hear you have a process in place there because, again, especially in today's world, everyone's chasing every order. But I mean, I think we all know in sales, sometimes you're just used as the third bid. I can't afford. Oh, absolutely. To, I can't afford to invest the time and resources to do a proper. Well, even even if I don't, even if I don't know that I'm just I'm just a confirming third bid because they've already got an incumbent. Mm -hmm. At the very least, if one of my salespeople brings me a blind RFQ, I, you know, as a seasoned business guy myself, I'm going to justifiably assume some other smart salesperson has been in front of this for six months and mm -hmm. positioned themselves in a way that they've written themselves into the RFQ because that's what I used to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Well, and I saw some interesting research from Gartner and I can't give you the exact date, but 83% of the buying decision does not involve face-to-face -face with any supplier. Mm -hmm. So you get 17% of the time to try to get them to rethink by the time. Yeah. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. Cause a few years ago, Gardner's research said it, you know, that the buying decision is 70% made before they even engage with the suppliers. Right. And it's going. And so there's two things that are happening, right? I think one is that it's, they're getting less and less involved because they, you know, it's, the, you know, I call it the curse of knowledge, right? They're, they think that they can figure out how to buy their solution because, you know, the masterminds at Google can give them what they need. And, you know, that just, you know, that doesn't give you any insight into value. It just gives you information about product. And that's not the same thing. Um, and, you know, the other thing that has, I think, changed is the number of stakeholders with the client's buying organization who are involved in making the decision is going up and up and up and up and up. And salespeople and lots of organizations get comfortable talking to who they're comfortable with and they miss 80% of the people who are involved in the decision-making. Mm -hmm. And I think- So what do you have to say about the whole idea of consensus? Yeah, well, I think there's and, three and things- committees. There's three things that I'm thinking of there. Uh, no, no, number one, there's a committee, and it depends whose research you look at, but let's, the general numbers are seven people involved in there. So yeah. you know, the technical user, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're not the lowest price person and your person's in there and they're saying, hey, you know, I want to choose this one, you need to give them ammunition. I like the person. He's responsive. He's been a good friend of mine. He always answers the call. Those aren't going to, you know, I'm six other people. That's not value to me saying here's the business case that we put together saying that if we work with this chosen supplier, these are the impacts, give them the ammunition to justify not buying the lowest price. I'm going to steal a quote here from a lady who's the head of the Chartered Institute of Procurement and Supply. I did an event in the UK years ago and she said, you know, if you can't quantify your value to salespeople in the room, don't expect me to do it for you. I'm responsible for buying a zillion things. I can't be an, an expert on every little thing. Yeah. So, you know, all I see I, is they look the same, they smell the same. If you can't do the work, don't expect me to do it to justify paying you more. And I just laugh because a lot of people will say, well, we can't quantify our value. We couldn't possibly put a number to it. Well, if you can't, guess what? Procurement can't either. And, and you can't. <laughs> this is what I do for 25 years. Um, back to the point about the RFQ engagement. The only key takeaways that I have is best practices and, and, and the like is that if that's your first time, you better find a way to respond and shake them up.
because they've already decided they want to buy this, 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 and this. So, you know, I would say to people, fine, I'm going to charge you to bid. If you want me to come in and do this, and I'll waive the fee if you choose me, but I'm not going to come in and do free consulting and saying, you asked for this. This is what you asked for, but don't you want this outcome? Yes. Well, that outcome would be better doing this. That's called free consulting. Mm-hmm. So say, okay, fine. I'm going to bid, but either I'm going to charge you to bid, and then I'll waive it if you choose me, or I'll charge you to bid and I'll only charge you half of the value that I create. Here's five ideas that'll save you $100,000 of energy. Take it and choose whoever you want to do the job, but I'm going to get paid for that. There's got to be some skin in the game because I will ask anybody to do something free with me. And I have a friend who's in the construction remodeling business and he does extremely well because he does awesome work. But I always asked him, I said, and this is a, a, you know, a business to consumer situation, but how do you not get cherry picked? You know, come to my house, tell me everything I need to think of if I want to do a bathroom remodel, as an example. Well, you need to consider this. And if you thought of that and change this, and if you want to, because once you tell me everything, I've extracted that knowledge. I could probably go to Home Depot and, and, and do it myself or hire people for whatever it is per hour to do it. Your value is that knowledge and experience. And he goes, no, I have to be cognizant that I'm giving away conceptual ideas, very high level. So people look and go, that guy knows what he's talking about, but I don't give him the blueprints. I don't say, and you know, change this and change that because you're right. After that, I am a commodity because you're going to take that until every other supplier. And when I want it done this way. So we've uh, had, uh, you know, with one of our engineering services, um, in our industrial business, we perform what's called on-stream leak repairs. Okay. You know, we're, we're literally measuring up a, you know, a piping flange uh, and it's leaking and we're, we're designing a, a, a custom fit metal box to go over top of it. Gotcha. So that we can seal that leak while the plant is running. So we've had two clients this past year and who we would submit our proposal with our, and our engineering drawings. And, and then we'd get a phone call a week later from some machine shop that says, hey, we've got your drawings. XYZ company has asked us to build it, but we have some questions. <laughs> like, because we, you know, and I was like, are you, are you for, I mean, it says right on the drawing everywhere, intellectual property and yeah, such yeah, and such yeah. and such. <laughs> and, you know, these two different companies just handed out our drawings and tried to get the a local machine shop to do it as cheap as possible. And then they wanted our feedback on how to build it because we, excluded certain details <laughs> well that's 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 good and, and, the, and the joke i always make especially in the industrial space is that once you start to realize your value is your knowledge mm-hmm. more than just i have a bearing well he has a bearing well mine's better than him. Uh, probably not it was the knowledge around uh, what should you do and how i won't get into all that but it's the knowledge anybody that's had the pleasure of dealing with a lawyer and i could say this now my dad was a lawyer he's passed but i can say i mean you might get the 30 minute free discussion so they can say, here's your conception, what I know and what I think, but they don't give you the game plan because if they did, no. I would go online and do it myself. Sure. And that's just one thing I say, yeah, put that in the back of your mind. Your, yeah. your knowledge engineering, you might be selling a product in that example, but the knowledge around it is really what it is or the differentiator. Yeah. Now, you wrote the book for buyers and sellers on value first, then price. And, and you know, and Tell me about how you put that book together because there's an awful lot of contributions. 
Well, it's an, it's an interesting. So a professor from a university approached me and said, you know, we should write a book on best practices in selling. He met me at Strategic Account Management Association, SAMA. And I was doing a keynote on the need to sell value and how to do it, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we started saying, you know, there's a lot of books on best practices in selling. Some of them are better than others. We can just leave it at that. But, you know, one, I'd like to see practitioner, not just theory. You know, give me some true examples. So what is Parker Hannafin doing? What is DHL, the big European shipping company? I mean, you're shipping boxes. There's three people. How do you charge more? Uh, Maersk, I think, is also in one of the uh, chapters, uh, the shipping company. But then I, I remember we had the, it was going to be sales only. And over the years, I've been very lucky to do a lot of work with procurement. And honestly, it was by accident. But procurement people saw me. Uh, I think it started at London Business School. And they said, we talk about buying value all the time. We don't know. We know theoretically, how to, can you come talk to us? So I got to meet a bunch of different procurement people, some professors, so University of Tennessee and IMD and some procurement schools, Center for Advanced Procurement Studies saying, wow, um, how do we do this? And then I said, you want to know what? I'd, I'd love to hear from you. What do salespeople do that helps them not get paid for value? So there's some great chapters, a Scottish gentleman uh, named Rob McGuire. He used to be a customer of mine. Now we're best friends. Uh, he used to be a chief procurement officer at Stanley Black & Decker, then a company called Reckitt Ben Kieser, which is a Procter & Gamble. But I mean, he goes, you sales guys don't understand how I buy. You don't understand how I think. And value quantification being so important to it. So I, I think he wrote a great chapter in there. One key takeaway that probably goes against the way most people sell is I usually, when I'm engaging a client, I say, show me your key account presentation. You get a big opportunity to go into this company or show me what you would show either at that review meeting or that first time you're making the introduction. And I'm going to say they all are some variation of here's who I am, my company. Here's my history. Here's my, where my offices are. Here's how big I am. Here's some accreditation. You know, here's who I am. And then here's seven things that I could do for you. They lead to what the value would be. Mm -hmm. And he goes... Todd, how many times have you guys been sitting in a room with a C-level person and they've looked at their BlackBerry? So it gives you an idea of how long ago we're talking. And they yep. got up and they left. And they said, oh, that drives me nuts. You prepare for this big meeting. You finally get the right person in the room. He goes, I've decided after five minutes that this is not important enough for my time, that I can be yep. somewhere else. And what you need to do is start with, I think I can deliver, I'm going to make up numbers, a million dollars of profit improvement to you by energy savings, optimize, whatever that is. Now I wanna show you how we could do that and where we could do that. You've got to get in front of me and get me interested. Yeah. Yeah, you gotta get, got get them excited right from the get-go yeah, with yeah. what value what, what value they're gonna get out of that meeting. Yes, 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 yes. And they don't, they don't care about how old you are and about how big your building is and how many people you, they don't care about any yeah. of that. And, I mean, if they, if they yeah. wanna know that stuff, they'll ask at the end, oh, by the way, like what's your capacity? Right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, all yeah. of that gets wrapped up in the customer saying, what's your capacity? Yeah, right? yeah. And it be that becomes a qualification statement sometime later. But if you don't capture their attention in speaking their language, you're yeah. done. Yeah. And, he, and his point was, you wouldn't have the seat at the table if I didn't know who you were. I yeah. mean, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have got, I wouldn't have been in this meeting, you know, if I didn't have some idea of who you were or somebody said, hey, we vetted them there. You know, it's not just some guy in his garage that says he can do this. I mean... So by then I've already got something. And like you said, now you've got me interested. Now I'm going to challenge you. How, where have you done that before? How would you do that? What about this? 
Do you have the capacity? I mean, these are all closing questions, but you starting with how I'm going to do it just minimizes it right away. So I think it's, he tells some great stories in there and there's a bunch of professors in there and, uh, you know, um, saying, you know, suppliers talk about value all the time. We want to buy value. And, and, you know, here's how you need to get that to me. What in the selling process you have to do it? How do you need to do it? How do you need to convince me to do it? So I think there's some great takeaways there. And, and I enjoy spending time with procurement people because I hate people thinking of sales and buying as these people of competing forces. Real quickly, I used to use a term that we would capture value of sales. So my, mm -hmm. my title of my presentation is always, you start with creating value. Value is not something that your engineers think is a value sitting in head office, but you know the customer values. You need to calculate that value. You need to put dollars and cents to it. You need to communicate that value so that people nod and go, that makes sense. I understand it. You're early in the buying process. So people are rethinking, I should be buying on this, not just landed cost, whatever that is. And then I would say capture because that would be four C's and you know, create capture, calculate. And it was a professor who was very well known in the value space named Jim Anderson at Kellogg. And he says, the problem with the term capture, Todd, is you're reinforcing the mindset that it's a zero sum game, that value is created and you're capturing. Capturing says you're taking something away from something. He goes, all the research mm -hmm. you talk about and that we've done together shows that both sides can be more profitable. So mm -hmm. originally I thought he was being semantics, academic. He goes, no, both sides profit from value. And real quickly, just a few quick statistics here. Um, industrial companies that buy on best value. So an association called MAPI, Manufacturers Alliance of Productivity and Innovation, um, did a survey for me before I did a keynote at a procurement conference for them. So this is the big, uh, big industrial companies. I'm just gonna throw out some names like a Caterpillar or a John Deere type of big company type thing. And yeah. they said, do you have a structured methodology to buy best value? Which, you know, and they gave examples of what, you know, what do you measure? Do you measure, you know, installation costs? Do you measure operating costs? Do you measure energy? Do you measure all these things? It turns out companies that buy based on best value are 35.5, whatever, 36% more profitable than companies that don't. That every time they buy something, they try to figure out what value is. It's an ad hoc thing. It's three bids and a buy. A bunch of studies on the sales side. And again, just the key number one, I think is of interest. Companies that take the value approach, not the volume, the value approach and are good at it. Okay. And this was Deloitte uh, doing some work. We're 36% more profitable. So the buyer can be 35 and a half. The seller can be 36, not at taking it from the other person, but yeah. by reducing cost or creating profit. It's a win-win for everybody. Won numerous awards from my customers saying, I didn't mind paying you more because you delivered more value than that. And my favorite was my CEO uh, at the annual shareholder meeting, which I got to go to a lot. He says, we increased price by this, but we created more value that was three times as much. The more you buy from me at a higher price, the more value you get. The world's better off by getting rid of waste. So it's trying to sit beside the buyer. Getting so rid of waste. I love that. Yeah, because yeah. I think that's where all the value is created you know, in the industrial space. But let me be clear. Are you saying that price and cost and value are not the same thing? <laughs> the only thing the three of them have in common, believe it or not, is they're all five letters. 
They're completely, <laughs> completely, completely different concepts, but I can tell you a million stories of where people have transposed it. Price is what you pay for something, $10. Yep. Okay? Cost basically would be $10 plus the shipping cost, plus the receiving cost, plus the cost of researching it, plus the, any return cost, you know. But value, I mean, there's also other costs. How much energy does it use? Does it use more ink, more water? You know, these types of things. And then value, because again, people look at total cost of ownership or only looking at the cost side. But what if I could help you increase your revenue? What if I could speed up your machine? What if I could increase the value of what you sell? So you can sell it at a higher, a higher price to your customer. What if I could get you to the market faster? In some industries, so the, the uh, high technology, high tech world, time to market is everything. If you've got a faster phone or better phone, every week you're in the market before your competitor gets there is worth, and you can quantify this. Uh, there's yeah. seasonality to it. I mean, um, give you a, a true example that just happened this year with COVID. Um, Peloton got hammered at one of their earnings because their logistics supply chain couldn't move stuff fast enough. Time to market was everything. Shipping, you know, these types of things. So time to market. I was talking to uh, I was talking to a CEO today. And uh, there was actually, there was two, two different CEOs I was meeting with today. I was in, in this entrepreneurial CEO group the last day and a half. And one of them had ordered a Peloton and it was like five months ago and they finally got it yep. for, for his wife. Five for months. Christmas. Yeah, for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's about right. And, and the, the other gentleman, he had bought a high-end mountain bike and he, he ordered it in October and he, he's getting it next week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you wonder how much, why, how much value is lost. Yep, yep, yep. And I can give you a specific example there. So one, Peloton just announced they're making a big, investing in a big manufacturing facility in Ohio. Supply. So I was doing a project, and I won't get into specific names, but it was a, a company that was involved in small, low price plastic things. Think little, you know, shaving bottle type things, right? Sure. And they're selling, they're selling to a, a Procter & Gamble type of a company. And they're competing against supply out of Asia, okay? And Asia is lower price per piece than the, you know, and their argument was, but we're local. Okay, you want me to pay you, I'm going to make up numbers, but I think it was 25% more because you're, you're local. And the customer couldn't get their mind around it. It's just too much. And we did a project and we were able to quantify that the customer was actually paying 37.5% more than what the list what, what they thought they were paying. It was actually 12% cheaper to buy something locally that was 25% more expensive. Because right. one, the way the contracts are written, you've got the currency fluctuation between the, the US dollar and the yuan. And I said, okay, look at, we know where the yuan normally trades. We know where it's, it's, it is now because of numerous political, whatever reasons, but you're, you're opening yourself up to this much risk, right? right? I mean, I mean you know, so you're, there's, there's risk there. Now I have to put probability against risk, but you're basically funding something there. Two, the cost to ship stuff from Asia to the US right now is going back towards historical highs for two reasons, um, which I didn't know. Again, it's amazing what you can learn by doing some Google research, but all the ships are coming full, leaving Asia to North America. North America used to send a lot of our recycling material back to Asia to be disposed of. 
Asia yeah. said, we don't want it anymore. So ships yeah. are coming here full, going back empty. Well, guess what the shipping right. company say? Well, wait a minute. Well, we got, we do, we, okay, then you're, you're paying for it both ways, guys, whether it comes back empty. So double the price coming in. Right. Um, then inventory. These people were, it was a cost of inventory. I'm going to make up numbers, but it's like six weeks to get something out of China factory to the port to get it on the boat. Then it gets stuck sitting in uh, Long Beach, California, because they can't uh, dock to get it off. So Mr. Customer was keeping, say, three to four months of inventory, where if you were down the street from me, I would keep two weeks of inventory. So you can quantify. Either way, we started walking through all this, and we presented it back to the customer. And the customer said, the research is sound. We never knew it was that. We knew it was there. We didn't know what it was. But wow. I mean, um, so I think there's some takeaways there. One, it's our job to start with some reasonable assumptions and go to the customer. And mm -hmm. I hate to use the term educating, informing, challenging, because they said yep. they knew something, but they didn't, they hadn't done the work around it. And they said, I could be high there or low there or change that. But they were like, wow, you're right. You're actually cheaper when we look at the total cost. Uh, and again, lost revenue because in that market, <coughs> I mean, if you, so if I you think it's your shelf stock, you're in trouble. There's a, a revenue loss. If I understand what you're saying for our listeners, then one, the selling company needs to do the work to calculate the value. Now, they might need to make some assumptions and then get buy-in on those assumptions from the selling organization. They also are going to need to know what the competing alternatives are yeah. and to, to, be, to give themselves a comparison. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're just, if it's, if it's me, company A and company B, mm -hmm. you better understand what those differences are in value and, and try to try to quantify it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and, but even if you don't know, I mean, first of all, there is always an alternative. And I love my engineering friends. I, mean, I would ask them, what's the alternative? There is no alternative. There always is. Doing nothing is an alternative. Absolutely. Well, that's bad. That's bad. I, I know it's bad, but it's an alternative. You could run. Well, it's a reality. I always tell my team that there are four kinds of competition that you face. Right. There's, you know, there's a competitor that you think, you know, which is buy from somebody else, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it's use internal resources to do it themselves. It's to do nothing or it's to use the money for something completely different. Yeah. Yes. Yes. There you go. So those are uh... all of those are competing, you know, is the competitive environment that you got to try to uncover. It isn't just buy from company A, buy from company B, because it might be not buy at all. Yes, yes, yes. And, and, and let's come back to that because that, there's this ability and willingness to pay is an important, uh, you know, getting them to choose you versus doing nothing. But, and I can't give you the source right now, but it was something to the effect that the, the, the company or the supplier that brings the business case first to the customer mm -hmm. is 70 something percent more likely to get the order, even if other people show up with a business case. If I've right. been working with you, so... I might not need to know, I know nothing, or I know existing scenario, I know where I could be. And then maybe I do know my competitor that they're not as quick or they're not as this, or they don't have these skills or tools or whatever it is. But just by being first, I put the onus on them to do it. And now they're yeah. on the defensive. You've set well, the- You know, there's, there's actually a lot of science in that. Um, and there's a book by Dr. Robert Cialdini called Influence, and, and he's got six, six laws of influence. He's now have a, he now just came out with a revision. There's a seventh law of influence. 
But one of those laws of influence is the human uh, propensity to be consistent. And so when you work, I mean, I mean you've heard this in, in sales, you know, micro commitments, right? But mm -hmm. once you get engaged with your client and equally when they get engaged with you, you're both likely to act consistently from how you've, how you've acted in the past. So it's really important that you get in front with business cases early. And that's why I always tell my team that, you know, RFQs, if you haven't been involved in that RFQ for months before it came out, is an exercise in two or 300 person hours in preparing a document that no one's going to open. And the only way to get them to open it is to walk in and say, are we talking about a $100,000 job? and the price to do that or the million dollar improvement i can make do you want to talk yeah that's the only way to get me to, to restart the whole buying process again yeah. is to say wait i missed something and to have the confidence and have some reasonable assumptions around it and there you have it thank you everybody so much for listening to this episode of the amplifier podcast if you'd like to get in touch with or learn more about don or todd and what they both do then you can do so anytime through their links in the episode description Make sure you leave the show a five-star rating. It truly does help us out a lot. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss any future episodes. But with all that said, I thank you so much for listening again. And we can't wait to see you next time on the Amplifier Podcast.